those of you my age, I think you know this. For those of you who are younger, especially kids, pay attention. This is something that you will find delightful, especially on road trips. So Pete and repeat were sitting on a fence. Pete fell off, and who was left? Pete and repeat were sitting on a fence. Pete fell off, and who was left? Okay, you can do this hundreds of times, kids, okay? Especially about the second or third hour into a road trip. Pete and repeat were sitting on a fence. I don't know why we found that funny. I don't know why that's stuck in my head right now. We probably should not analyze that. I mean, the, the amount of useless information in here. It came to mind because as, I'm, as we were studying and looking at this passage, I believe this message about suffering being for our benefit, being for God's glory, being a blessing in which we can rejoice, it's been repetitive. We've been talking about suffering for some time. Now, repetition aids learning, right? Those of you who homeschool, those of you who teach, uh, those of you who teach our, our children here, you know repetition aids learning. But repetition, I would say, is also essential for difficult truths. First Peter is definitely full of difficult truth, but ultimately glorious truth. It is absolutely countercultural to tell Christians, you are called to suffering. This is not something that might happen. It is a, a surety. It is very countercultural. We were driving yesterday. And we, we drove past a church, and um, they had a unique unique name. Well, I don't know anything about the church itself. I just know the name. It's, it's called Coffee Church. And um, I don't know it. I'm not casting aspersions on the people. It's just the thing that they've chose to market with. Um, it says, Welcome to Coffee Church. We think coffee describes us the best. When you imagine drinking a cup of coffee, you might think of relaxing with friends or enjoying a stunning view, that's how church should be. Fun, relaxing, and all the while giving you the boost you need to go through your week. Um, yeah, don't go to coffeechurch.com during the message, okay? <laughs> Again, they, they, I understand perhaps the heart of what they're trying to do, but this, this message, this, this paragraph on their website juxtaposed against suffering for suffering and slander and suffering for the sake of doing right, it just doesn't go with our culture today. Church is supposed to be, you know, Christians have no problems. Christians are rich. Christians are healthy. And they have no issues. But that's not true. And Peter is telling us repeatedly, probably because we need it, that suffering is in God's will for us. So I don't want the repetition of these messages to turn to allow you to turn your brain off. You heard this last week. You heard this the week before. But, but we're working through faithfully trying to work through this passage. Um, and, and today is the final part on this passage on suffering. So I, I also thought this is like training for an emergency. Uh, I have a friend who is retiring. Uh, he's a fighter pilot in the Air Force or the Air National Guard. And he is retiring and he'll be entering into... Um, working for Delta Airlines as a passenger um, airline pilot. And he was talking about the training they go through. And most thousands of, of flights happen per day. That, that is, is really, I think, as a pilot, it's probably very boring. You take off, you, you cruise, you land. They train for, and they train repetitively 
for the situations. An engine goes out, smoke in the cockpit. You know, these emergencies that happen, they, they train for them because they have to be prepared when it happens. When it happens, they cannot go to the book, pull it out and say, okay, now what are we supposed to do? They, ha- they have to respond. And I believe, in a sense, that this um, passage on suffering and the reason that Peter has brought our attention repeatedly to this topic from different ways with different messages is to prepare us. There are those of us, most of us in here do not, are not familiar with all the terms and conditions of our insurance policies. True? There's there's maybe one guy here that is, but most of us don't exactly know perhaps our coverage, you know, what happens. We pull it out when something happens. I wonder what I paid for all these years. Oh, this is good. I have a good agent. He prepared me. We can't treat this, this passage. We can't treat God's words as just something we're going to pull off the shelf. Let me rephrase. We should not treat God's words as just a, a break in case of emergency book that we pull out off the shelf. It's something that should transform the way we live to prepare us for what will happen. So if you would turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. We are going to start with the passage that Chad preached last week in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 19. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of god and if the righteous is scarcely saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner therefore let those who suffer according to god's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good let's bow together in prayer father we thank you for communicating to us through your word, through revealing your heart for us, through revealing your will for us in your word. And we thank you for this repetitive message. We know you love us. You do good for us. You want to glorify yourself through us. And we believe there is important truth here that we need. We pray that you will continue to reveal your purpose for our lives, especially in this area of suffering. We pray that as we sang just a few moments ago, this would be the prayer of our hearts. Blessed be your name when the sun is shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name when the road is marked with suffering and there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. These are not natural words to the sinful man but these are words that can be spoken by a transformed heart. We pray that you will use this passage, use this time today in your word to continue to mold and change our hearts. 
knowing that we will receive joy and blessing and bring you glory through living this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So kind of like a weekly TV show, we say previously in First Peter. So previously in First Peter, Chad brought us last week's passage. Remember, fiery trials are brought to test us, and we should not be surprised when they happen to us. Instead of being surprised, we are to rejoice, to rejoice and see the blessing of suffering, because the glory of God is manifested in our suffering. And so our passage today picks up in verse 15, and it continues to build on this theme of suffering for righteousness' sake. But I want you to note, maybe in your memory, maybe you've been reading, maybe you recall these verses, in First Peter, there's not only this general theme of suffering and what should we do, there is a, re- a recurring theme of suffering because of the false accusations of others. Suffering, being charged with doing evil when actually one has been doing good, when one's been doing righteousness. I believe that these false accusations can happen when unbelievers accuse or even when fellow believers perhaps may turn on you and cause you to suffer. You, you can jot these down. I'm going to read these verses quickly. We've, we've preached through these. First Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2:15 and 16 This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as servants of God later on in that same chapter verses 19 and 20 through 21 This is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly What credit is it if you are when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. First Peter chapter 3, earlier in, this, in the, the, the previous chapter, verse 16 and 17, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Isn't that one of the most difficult things to bear? When someone bears false witness against you, I mean, that's the biblical language, when someone lies about you, when someone mischaracterizes something you've said, when someone knows what you meant, yet they take things you said out of context and they turn that against you. Just these these four passages I've run through quickly, we talk about the ignorance of foolish people. That implies that they're not telling the truth about the believer. Slander based in untruth. To this, we have been called and we're to consider it a blessing from God. This is extremely difficult to bear, is it not? But thankfully, in today's passage, Peter provides more detail, more guidance for this difficult calling. So my first point is that we are to suffer rightly. We are to suffer for the right thing in the right way. Look at verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. But we are to expect suffering, verse 12. We are to rejoice in suffering, 12 through 15. And we are to evaluate our suffering in verse 15. Peter lists these four behaviors and says, don't suffer for this. 
if you're going to suffer righteously. Now, murdering, thieving, doing evil. He said, if, if you kill somebody and you suffer for that, this is not something you bring to God and say, you know, I'm suffering unjustly. If you, if you steal, it's not really suffering. It's more of a just punishment for that sin. These first three are, are curious because, and, and we perhaps in that time with the audience reading this letter, they were common false accusations brought against the Christians. We know from historical records that Nero, the emperor of Rome, blamed the Christians for burning the, the most treasured city of that time, Rome. First century Christians were accused of all sorts of deviant behaviors as Satan and unbelievers sought to extinguish the flickering flame of the Christian faith in the early church. We are to expect suffering. I mean, one would expect suffering for these behaviors, for murdering, for thieving, for doing evil. But perhaps these we could consider these are easily avoided behaviors, right? Like, even if you were not a Christian, most people don't have a problem with murdering. Just by the, the common grace of God, people have a certain sense of right and wrong. So these first three are interesting, murdering, thieving, and doing evil as a kind of a catch-all. But let's look at this fourth behavior. Why is it listed here? Meddler. Not a common word. It is from the 14th century Old English. To meddle means to interfere officiously or annoyingly. It's from a Latin word to mix. I want to point out that next week we're going to see in the passage about elders, there's three words for an elder, right? We've preached through these. There's shepherd, which is the Greek word poimen, um, elder, which is the Greek word presbyteros, and then overseer, overseer, which is episkopos. The word here for meddler is alotrepiskopos, episkopos, the same word. You heard episkopos for elder. For meddler, it's alotrepiskopos, which is a type of overseer. And it's defined as one who takes supervision of affairs that pertain to other people. One who is overseeing in no wise those affairs don't pertain to himself. He meddles in other men's affairs. The King James Version defines this word or says this verse as a busybody in men's matters. So why is it listed here along with these other behaviors? It may have been a problem in that time, but then you realize Peter did not write this letter to just one church. It's not like to the Corinthian church and you have this problem with meddling. This, this letter was being read by people scattered abroad. So I think it's appropriate to say it may have been a common problem for Christians. And if we're honest with ourselves, it can be a common problem even in our modern day. Uh, the, the Bible talks plenty about, especially if you look at that word busybody, verses in Second uh, Thessalonians 3.11 we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. First uh, Timothy talks about um, the young widows. Um, this is negative behavior. They learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. First Thessalonians 4, uh, we, uh, we urge you, brothers, to do this and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. So this is probably, appropriately, a common 
problem. And I say appropriately, not appropriate behavior, but we should appropriately consider the warning that when you suffer for meddling, it is not appropriate righteous suffering. I would submit for your consideration that for us now, meddling may look like agitating. Some commentators talk about especially political agitation within the church, being uh, getting involved in revolutionary matters to overthrow the government. It could also be manipulative participation in another person's life. Now, we preach and we try to exemplify community. The need for Christians to be in fellowship with one another, to be accountable to each other, to encourage each other. We should be cautious that we don't do so for our own elevated position of being an overseer in someone else's life, that we are speaking what the Spirit gives us to speak into someone's life, not, I wish they would just be more like this. I want to transform them. Perhaps meddling in our day would be over-specifying the pseudo-biblical way to do something. I just, um, I, I, these examples I give with trepidation because I actually generally don't know how many people might be involved. But these are just book titles or courses or things I've read in, in my years as an adult. There's a, there's a common book called Growing Kids God's Way. There's a book called Growing Food God's Way, Farming God's Way, um, Financial Management God's Way. There's even a book on Amazon, Becoming a Millionaire God's Way. We should be careful about suborning God and using his influence to try to accomplish our own agendas. Peter included meddling in his list of things for which we shouldn't suffer, things that we shouldn't consider as suffering rightly. And I can't say for sure why, but I can conclude that we are to be good citizens of the world, submit appropriately to the authorities in our life that are placed there by God, and we are not to improperly agitate, we are not to improperly manipulate and over's lives. So let that be a gentle warning to all of us. Continuing the evaluation of suffering in verse 15 and moving on to 16, Peter says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you do suffer rightly, how should you respond? Peter repeats the message he stated in the last few chapters by saying, Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Don't be surprised. Think for a moment why a believer would feel shame when he is falsely accused. Why would a person feel shame when he is suffering for doing good, when he is being slandered? Remember, this is the common thread of or specific thread of suffering, which is that false accusation suffering. Why do you think a person that would need a person would need to be encouraged? Don't be ashamed. You're doing righteousness. Yet you're falsely accused. Because we're we're human. There's a false accusation against us. We may know our intent was right. We may know that our words were carefully weighed, prayed over before being offered. And yet when someone twists them and slanders and falsely accused and you suffer we're not able to just, many of us are not able to just flip a switch and say, I have a clear conscience. Before God, I meant no ill will. I meant only to edify. Don't we still suffer? Don't we still feel something within us, even if we do genuinely have a clear conscience before God? 
it is healthy to evaluate our own motives when someone brings an accusation against us, but it is not worthwhile to seek for truth in lies brought against you. I am saying it, it, it may, you may feel like something was done wrong on your side, even if one did nothing wrong. But I think what Paul, Peter is saying and what God calls us to do is not to be ashamed if we are doing righteousness. I would say, perhaps, that when suffering comes for doing right, especially for teenagers, young people, or any of us that feed on affirmation and acceptance, if we are suffering for the cause of Christ, if we're taking a stand, if we're speaking truth lovingly, in an edifying manner, if we're choosing not to participate in something, and we suffer, whether we suffer loss of status, loss of a job, we may lose sight, hopefully temporarily, but we may lose sight of what is important. Our view may shift falsely to believe that what is earthly, the affirmation of mankind, the affirmation and approval of those around us who don't obey the gospel, we may feel that's more important than following after God. I say teenagers because I, I don't, I feel like in school, there's a lot of pressures. There's a lot of different dynamics. Other families have different values. Hopefully, all of us here that have children, we're trying to raise them and trying to teach them of eternal priorities and not just how important eighth grade, the social pecking order in eighth grade is. Even for unbelievers, we realize if you're an unbeliever here in your 30s or 40s, you realize that where you stood in seventh grade and you know, if you were picked first or fifth in the kickball line, it doesn't really matter now. Or you should not have that bother you now. But we may feel that Christ isn't enough when we suffer here on earth. We may feel that it's not worth it. Why do I have to be involved in church? Why do we have to be Christians? Can't we just do stuff and live the way other people do. They seem so happy. They're going to the lake every Sunday. They're 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 always smiling. They they have happy lives and, and we're we have to pray about stuff. We have to go on to you know sit in classes and read God's word. The antidote to this quote shame is to remember that we suffer to glorify God in the name of Christ. That last part of that verse 16, when it says to let him glorify God in that name, it's referring back to the, um, I believe, verse 14. It's referring back to uh, verse uh, 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, that name, glorifying God in the name of Christ, glorifying God with, with the name of Christian, it is all for him and it will all be worth it. There's an old gospel song. I'm not sure how many people here might remember it. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrow will erase. So swiftly run the race till we see Christ. Does anybody know that? All right. We, some of us remember. We sing this. We sang, Blessed be your name, because we have to be reminded 
this is not our home. This is not where it all ends. It will be worth it all, suffering for the name of Christ. We suffer rightly by suffering for the right things. We suffer rightly by not being ashamed as we suffer. And we suffer rightly by recognizing that we suffer in the name of Christ. Moving on to point two, the purpose of suffering and judgment. Looking in verse number 17. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then quoting from Proverbs 11.31, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We are told here that suffering has a purpose. Suffering has an eschatological meaning. It has a future end, future times um, meaning for the Christian. Last week, Chad showed us how this passage encourages the believer, encourages us by, saying, by showing us that when we endure suffering, it's a blessing because it affirms the sanctifying work of God in our lives. The very timing of suffering though I would submit for your consideration. The very timing of suffering is also an encouragement. Now stay with me. I'm going to work through some logical uh, steps here. First of all, note the words, it is time for judgment to begin. Now, is this speaking to Christians or non-Christians? We can be sure it's speaking to Christians because the object of the statement is that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. The household of God is a common phrase for the church. First Timothy 3 14 and 15, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So it is time for judgment to begin for Christians. But wait, you know, don't we commonly say here from this platform, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who believe? What is this judgment that's coming to believers? What judgment is there for believers who are in Christ, who are clothed in Christ's righteousness? We know that although there is no condemnation, that those who believe in Christ will be delivered from the punishment that will be received from those who don't believe in Christ. At the same time, we know that the Bible unequivocally teaches that Christians will be judged at the judgment seat of God, as it says in Romans chapter 14. So what does this verse mean? It's time for judgment to begin. And also of concern, perhaps, as we read this, you said the righteous are scarcely saved. Let's first look at that word judgment. The common meaning of judgment, which probably jumped in all of our heads, is that judge and jury, there's a criminal trial, there's a sentence, that's a judgment. That's a judgment that's levied against someone. That's a punishment. For believers, this is not the judgment that this passage refers to. There's also a meaning of the word judgment, which is an evaluation. If you consider that word jury, again, most of us think of those 12 people who sit in judgment at a trial. But um, if a person attends a musical conservatory or, or is in a performance major, some sort of musical performance major at a regular university, they face a music jury at the end of each semester. A music jury is like a final exam for the private lessons. The jury consists of a panel of faculty members who assess the musician's progress. Scientific conferences I'm a little more familiar with. You submit papers to be presented at that conference, but they don't accept just any paper. They, there's a term called peer-reviewed, reviewed by one's peers, 
or some some conferences for uh, really important papers, they'll have a jury of scientists that reviews whether that work is sufficient and uh, and enough to be included as a paper in that conference. So here, when Peter says that judgment begins for believers, I believe he means an evaluative process, not a punitive process, not one of punishment, but instead of an assessment. He augments that statement by marveling at the fate, the terrible fate that that waits for people who do not believe in Christ, who do not obey the gospel, and how unprepared they will be in having their faith evaluated. The other troublesome word here is scarcely. Usually this means barely, right? He's, we scarcely have enough food for supper. We, he scarcely, he barely passed that class. You know, a, a, a vernacular might be by the skin of one's teeth, which I don't really understand that expression. It's a little disgusting. But um, the more accurate meaning here, if you, instead of the word scarcely, if you say through difficulty, the the believer, the righteous person, is saved with difficulty. That's not to say that it's difficult, it's hard for God to save, to undertask the, the, undertake the task of redeeming a people. This quote from Proverbs 11.31 highlights that in these last days, as judgment, as an evaluation begins for God's people, it will be more difficult to remain faithful in the face of persecution. God's calling us to suffering so the Christian life is not like the slogan of Coffee Church. The Christian life is not like Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. The Christian life is not like the prosperity gospel, which is preached around the world and enslaves people around the world through false teaching. The Christian life is a call to difficulty, and suffering is part of that difficult evaluative process. So, Tim, how is this an encouragement? Our suffering is a sign that the beginning of the end is near. Our suffering is a sign that the beginning of the end is near. God is beginning his fire refining process. Remember last week we talked about fiery trials? His fire refining process of making us pure and perfect, even while we walk around in these bodies that are encumbered with sin. Verse 12 in our passage talked about fiery trials. Last week we sang how firm a foundation in verse 5. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Thy flames, the flames shall not hurt thee. I, God speaking, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The true essence of our faith is being revealed through suffering. The artifice, the pretense, the fakery that can come with a mere profession of faith that's not true, that's going to be burned away in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, like like kindling. I asked some of the camping guys what you use to start a fire, and Doug told me some people use dryer lint. I've read that dryer lint's extremely flammable. Don't test it especially kids, but I can see how, you know, I mean, we've read about accidents in homes where you don't clean your dryer thing. It's, it's like that, where the, the, fire tri- the fiery trial that God puts in your life through suffering, if the faith is not true, poof, it's going to burn away. Only a believer with true faith can stand in the face of suffering and glorify God in that suffering. 
So the encouragement is that that suffering is not pointless. It's not an arbitrary, whimsical God that just wants to play with human beings, but God is accomplishing a purpose in our lives to make us more pure. My third point is a summary of suffering because we come to the end of the chapter. We come to the end of this line of thought. Chapter 5 takes us in a different direction. A few weeks ago, I was able to preach uh, from earlier in this chapter, and I said, this is a new level of arrogance to quote myself. Um, I said, a common thread throughout these chapters in First Peter and the ongoing call to suffering, that common thread is that God is sovereign. God's view of our lives is eternal, and we are to trust in Him. This must be true for us to withstand suffering and to understand the purpose and blessing of suffering. Josh, what was that passage we read a few moments ago? Was it Psalm 31? As we close this passage on suffering, Peter is reiterating a summary statement in verse 19. So look at verse 19, because this is the capstone. This is the, the, summary, the sum total of everything he's been teaching us. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is very simple. This this this. This verse is worth memorizing. It's very, there's very simple points. We have a great and faithful Creator. When we suffer while doing good, we are suffering according to God's will for us. Therefore, we can and should entrust our souls to that Creator. Earlier, Josh read to us Psalm 31 and verse 5. The psalmist says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And trust. And trust. What does that look like? Initially, because I think small thoughts in my head, my mind goes to the Allstate commercial. You're in good hands with Allstate if you watch college football. That's what the hands are behind the, the field goal. The good hands people. I mean, it's a very effective marketing campaign because obviously I've remembered it for decades. But their their whole point is that you should just rest, relax, be at peace because this insurance company is going to take care of you when bad things happen. But that's just a obviously a very shallow sort of mind tickle thing. Let's think deeper. What does it mean to entrust and trust our souls? And I just jump to the last words of believers, of, of Jesus himself dying on the cross. Into thy hands, speaking to his Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Stephen the martyr, the, the first martyr, Acts chapter 7, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Polycarp was an early martyr in the first century, the bishop of the church at Smyrna. And eyewitnesses to his martyrdom, to his being burned alive, took extreme detailed notes and, and, and related in historical fashion as to how Polycarp faced death. Definitely a man who didn't just break 
these truths from an emergency case and say, okay, I'm being burned. What should I say now? But these were truths that were in his life. They, they brought this 86-year-old man into the arena. And they called on him like, they, they said, we respect your age. Renounce Christ and live. You're just going to live a few more years. Renounce Christ. And Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? They brought him to the stake to be burned. And they were going to nail him to that wooden stake. And he's, Polycarp said, leave me as I am. There's no need to nail me in place. Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And then his final words before he died. I bless thee, he is praying to God. I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ for the resurrection to everlasting life, both of soul and body and the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And may I today be received among them before thee as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. As thou, the God who lies not and is truth, has prepared beforehand and shown forth and fulfilled. For this reason I also praise thee for all things. I bless thee, I glorify thee through the everlasting and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved child, through whom be glory to thee with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for the ages that are to come. Amen. The last words of this martyr. This is entrusting our souls to our Creator God. This is living with the full, real, life-changing knowledge that God is being glorified as He wills us to suffer for our good and for His glory. This is not only life-changing, but death-changing as well. Let me caution us lovingly that this is not some sort of mystical ideal for super-Christians. This is truth for our lives today. You know, if, if we do occasionally let our minds run when we read of persecution of Christians overseas and we wonder would we be able to stand and, and if someone is threatening my life or the life of a family member if I'm willing to if I'm willing to renounce Christ or not. Do I know now that I would be strong enough? I don't know. But I think this is one of the reasons we hear this repetitive truth. is to transform us so that we don't, in that moment, have to test our faithfulness. But if we've lived a life, and if the small suffering that God brings to us He's able to build on that in our lives and to prove himself faithful. And to, if we entrust him with a small rumor about us that hurts us a little bit, someone misread something we did, someone is accusing us falsely, and we let God handle that. And like, God, you're faithful. I've seen you faithful in this thing. Okay. Other suffering that comes. God, you're faithful in that. I think the leap from our lives now to being a Polycarp or a Stephen 
God takes us on that path. It's His refining fire, that suffering, our dross to consume. Our, our doubt, our, our, our fear, He can consume that. So as we close this chapter, one more time I will repeat, don't be surprised by suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. Suffer for the right things and don't be ashamed when you suffer in the name of Christ. Suffer knowing that through that fiery trial, God is starting His evaluation of your faith. And finally, take great comfort in entrusting your very soul to your Creator. We suffer and we trust. And may God be glorified. Our Father, we thank You for the truths in Your Word. May this not be mere words. May this not be a mere recitation of Scripture. But may it burn within us. May we see Your hand in the trials that come our way. Whether they be suffering, whether they be uh, the consequence of a sinful world, may we look to You for resolution, for peace, for understanding what we are to learn. There are there is suffering here in this room that I'm not aware of. There's suffering that only you know in the hearts and the lives of your children here. We pray that you would speak to us that quiet, restful voice that says, Trust me with your souls, for I love you, and I will be glorified in your lives. Just let me work my will in your lives to burn away that which is impure, to make your gold more strong and able to withstand what's going to come. Father, we know you know the long picture, the, the big picture of what's ahead for us. And we know that you want to prepare us for whatever lies ahead. And we pray that we will trust you. We will not be the pot that tells the pot the potter, whoa, this is not what I want to do, but we'll just trust that we will receive our greatest fulfillment in bringing you glory and living out the purpose and the will that you have for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.